Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome into another exciting episode of The Nuclear View. Of course, I am Adam Lowther with Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin, your three round table discussions for today. And of course, we had a great discussion last week about South Korea, assurance, deterrence. And of course, as you probably many of our listeners already know, on April the 26th, President Biden met with President Yoon Suk-yeol of South Korea, and they agreed to the Washington Declaration, in which the United States assured uh, South Korea that we would be there for them in the event that nuclear conflict broke out. And so we thought we would cover the Washington Declaration, what does it say, what does it promise, and then have a little discussion about South Korea's past and what the United States has done in the past in terms of nuclear weapons in South Korea. So with that, Curtis, let me let you kick it off today and give us your thoughts on the Washington Declaration. Adam, do you want to familiarize the listeners with the declaration? That's what I thought you were going to do, my friend. Oh, I'm giving commentary today, man. Oh, okay. Well, then, okay. Well, so let me, I've got the Washington Declaration here. And what it essentially says is that the Rock has full, and I'm quoting, the Rock has full confidence in U.S. extended deterrence commitments and recognizes the importance necessity and benefits of its enduring reliance on the U.S. nuclear deterrent. It then goes on to say that the alliance commits to engage in deeper cooperative decision-making on nuclear deterrence, including through enhanced dialogue and information sharing regarding nuclear threats to the rock in the region. The two presidents announced that the establishment of a new nuclear consultative group to strengthen extended deterrence, discuss nuclear and strategic planning, and manage the threat of the nonproliferation regime posed by the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And, of course, sort of the main thing that it does is it says going forward, the United States will further enhance the regular visibility of strategic assets to the Korean Peninsula, as evidenced by the upcoming visit of a U.S. nuclear ballistic missile submarine to the ROC and will expand and deepen coordination between our militaries, end quote. So this was clearly an attempt by the Biden administration to assuage the concerns of the Yun administration which back in January, as we've mentioned before, said, hey, it may be time for us to build a South Korean nuclear arsenal. Now, with that, Curtis, Jim, 
What is your commentary on this uh, Washington Declaration? So, Adam, help me. <clears throat> I was reading through the Declaration. Uh, could you show me in the Declaration where they announced that we are transferring nuclear weapons into the region? I, I don't believe it says that. Okay. Can you show me where it says that we're now going to base bombers, strategic bombers uh, that are nuclear capable within the region? I don't believe it says that. Yeah, Didn't we pull them out of Guam? I thought we thought the risk was too high, so we pulled yeah. them out of Guam, if I, I recall. I, I saw that. I, I didn't see those things either. Yet the uh, the director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security's Indo-Pacific uh, Security Initiative um, published um, uh, recently that this is the day that U.S. and South Korea truly became a nuclear-armed alliance. Uh, so, um, who was that, by the way? They must be very young because I remember uh, very early on. Well, I mean, I guess. Well, it doesn't matter who it was. I, but I'll say this, that if that's how we define a nuclear armed alliance, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of a strange definition for me. Um, look, I'll admit that that um, uh, this was that the, the declaration does reaffirm the 70 year relationship. And that's always a good thing. You know, this was a, an, a relationship that started out as a defense pact became an became an economic relationship and developed into a dependable ally. And, um, it, you know, it, Korea is a first world country, right. With a high tech, highly educated population that is um, the seventh largest arms exporter in the world. I mean, this is a responsible nation that lives in a really bad neighborhood, right? Yes. We're talking an armed North Korea, a nuclear-armed China, nuclear-armed Russia, um, hostilities potential to the north, to the south. Um, you know, this is a really tough area. And I'm not so sure that these sort of promises are going to satisfy President Yoon's uh, constituency. I kind of think of this as, Adam, you're hosting Thanksgiving in your home and you've invited your very best friend uh, to, to sit and eat with you in, in Jim Petrosky. The thing, though, is, is that Jim Petrosky is eating the six-course meal that you made, and this the wonderful, succulent Thanksgiving meal, <laughs> while you sit and eat yet last night's frozen TV dinner in your kitchen. That's essentially what this is. This is an envelope full of empty promises and, um, and, and sort of pats on the head and you'll be okay. We'll be there. We promise. This is no different than what we had on April 25th. If I were, uh, if I were uh, uh, involved in, in this on the peninsula. Well, this, so I, I just think that this is weird. We, we promised them, um, what extended tabletop exercises that goes to the next level. We've ex allowed them to consult on weapons that they do not possess and do not own uh, and, um, and have no control over, so to speak. Um, and our, our, our sort of booby prize is we're going to, we're going to float an SSBN uh, to do a port call um, every once in a blue moon, which we haven't done for decades. Um, in order to assuage uh, this, this is important to understand for our listeners to understand. 
I always like to look at what is the motivator for these kinds of relationships. And I think that for the United States, the motivator was, was first and foremost, not to allow an ally to become a proliferator and therefore lead the world when they determine that they don't trust uh, the American extended deterrence promise. Um, and that was the most important. That is primary. And the penultimate goal was then security. And so I would argue here that this is not going to last very long uh, because this promise does not change anything that what we had on April 25th. That's my two cents. Let me turn this over to Jim, but I will remind listeners that, you know, in 1991, when George H.W. Bush pulled all the nuclear weapons out of, you know, overseas, that there were about a hundred or so nuclear weapons in South Korea. So the South Koreans, it, you know, for old guys, it's, you know, it's a, it's a period you can still remember nuclear weapons there. And so I, this is sort of why I'm surprised that by the Scrocroft Center's, you know, so, sort of explanation, because a, a nuclear alliance has nuclear weapons and we used to have them there. Right. So, Jim, let me turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Adam and Curtis. Uh, first of all, I'll say you guys did a great job of shielding the listeners from me after they listened to last week's episode and my attempt at repeating how from 2001, <laughs> a space odyssey. After I listened to that, I cringed so I can understand our listeners cringing. Yeah. Even Curtis is. Well, I don't oh, okay. think they thought you were doing an impersonation. You know, they probably just thought you were quoting, you know, a quote uh, is different. It's not quite as good as your Reagan, but it was pretty good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate you shielding me this long, but I got to step in. Yeah, so so I'm going to take a little different view because Curtis came loaded for bear one to, again, shield me from the audience, but I'm going to speak anyway. Um, and that is it. I see. So, so I, as a technical guy in the nuclear world, have also been involved in nuclear power. And the IAEA especially uh, has uh, been very closely associated with South Korea in their nonproliferation role. And, you know, Korea has a, a history um, with the IAEA of looking at the need, maybe you could say, or at least the interest in developing uh, nuclear materials for the for the potential use for uh, use in nuclear weapons. And I think that at least in the past, I think the Korea, uh, South Korea could do it. I have no doubt that if oh, South Korea no wanted to build a nuclear weapons program, they could do it. And I think what they've done in the past is they've sort of showed people in a, ver a variety of ways uh, through, uh, you know, while staying within the IAEA requirements that we can do it. So don't push our limit. And I see this declaration maybe as, you know, when I read it, was a way for the United States to say, as Curtis said, hey, we've got your back. Don't make that move. And the question is, why are we doing that at this point? Why are we, why today or April 26th, 2023, 
why are we making this declaration? Where did where did the question come from that U.S. would not be providing the extended deterrence? And why would why would uh, uh, the Republic of Korea decide to join in on this, or at least you know be a part of this to say we need that that uh, um, assurance that you're going to be there? Have we intonated that we won't be there? Is that the issue? And that's a question I asked for the two of you, having followed this, because that's what I read into this document. Well, you can't. That's a great question. Well, let, let's, you know, it's funny that we had the NPR in October in which we say we're not going to have slick them in and we're going to get rid of the hedge. And, you know, we want to move towards disarmament. And if you're South Korea, Japan, you know, a couple of countries in Europe, the Poles, for example, uh, that's a very, very, very worrying, you know, uh, thing to say and a, a message to try to communicate in the midst of Russian nuclear threats, uh, Chinese breakout, what is clearly a North Korean breakout. I mean, we, we have we we've not really talked about the fact that North Korea is in a breakout. They're expanding their arsenal so rapidly that any effort we have or we make for THAAD or any other ballistic missile systems, they can overwhelm it. They already have ICBMs sufficient to strike Washington, D.C. They're putting, you know, they're putting ISR assets up to try to build their own ITWA system. I mean, their their technical capability is growing rapidly. And we're saying, hey, we don't really want to have these things. We'll build some new ones. But, you know, we really want to get rid of them. That, that's not how you communicate will and commitment. So is it any wonder that South Korea says, you know, guys, we looked at the NPR, and we may need to build our own. But so, by the way, well, before Curtis speaks, I just want to tie this into that history that you talked about. Then I'll let Curtis speak. And that was, in addition to that, and because this fits into what Curtis always talks about, when we did have weapons in, in South Korea, remember we had strategic and tactical nuclear weapons available. I mean, there were options because their adversary, their biggest concern is right across that northern border. And so tactical nuclear weapons, you know, got to be part part of what's in play. So, Curtis, go ahead. No, I appreciate that very much. Now, I I think to your to your point, Adam, is that what we see here is this declaration had to happen. Because um, the administration and the, the policies of nuclear deterrence that came out in that NPR, which were uh, have been chronicalized about you know the the things that are you know of issue, um, are are this uh, this con- constant confusion of how do we message deterrence, and so when your ultimate goal is a sole use policy or a no first use policy, yet you want to keep your allies who are perfectly capable of proliferating from proliferating. You now have, you know, a problem here in how you balance this, this equation of 
I want to do less with my nukes. I want to lower the per, the the purview of my nukes, but my my allies are not going to let me. Never mind that our adversaries aren't really letting us, but now our allies are not going to let us go down. And I'm not sure that the administration is really listening. And I would say that if you believed, if you truly wanted to to enforce with full clarity the extended deterrence promise to South Korea, why? where is the declaration that we are willing to trade Seattle for Seoul? No disrespect to our Seattle listeners. It just rhymes. But the point is, is that our allies don't trust, or maybe that's too strong, lack total faith that we are willing to execute that nuclear exchange because we, we really lack a, a large capacity of theater nuclear capability. And this same administration has shown its desire not to do more with the cancellation of the Slickum N. Uh, if you really want a message with a submarine, you float an SSGN fully loaded with a complement of nuclear-tipped Slickum Ns, and you'll convey a real message of extended deterrence. You know, it's it's interesting to th- think about the the rationale behind uh, Kim Jong Un's rapid expansion. So, if you look at at the first. 15 years of the North Korean nuclear program, they spent over the course of that time about $5 billion in total to get to about the year 2014. And then in the subsequent years, they've been spending about a billion dollars a year on their nuclear and ballistic missile programs. That's all they're spending. So they're getting a tremendous bang for their buck. I mean, for the North Koreans, nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles are the poor men's defense. And what they're getting out of this is they're trying to tear asunder that relationship between the United States and South Korea. And then they're also trying to force the U.S. and South Korea to stop the joint exercises because the joint exercises scare KJU. And then when the South Koreans a few years ago created essentially a, I can't remember the name of the unit. It had a great name, but it was dedicated to uh decap decapitation strike uh, against KJU that scared him. And so therefore you know they're they're actively doing much of this to prevent all of that from ever happening. Jim, yeah, Adam, and I'll, I'll also mention that you know you you talk about these uh, these joint exercises. You know, in this document, it talks about you know tabletop exercises and how much publicity and and you know documentation is going to be there in such a thing. You know, you've you've got to really see. You know, there's something about seeing the forces and moving the forces in a very real way. And as Curtis says, having forces in in theater and off of off of your shores that makes a difference in the way that this is messaged. And I think that's really important. It shows a, a different type of commitment. 
And, you know, going back to, you know, also going back to the concept about the nuclear posture review, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the, the article by um, our, our senior fellow, uh, uh, Robert Peters, who wrote recently about a need for a new NPR because things are changing so rapidly. And we're seeing that happen, you know, in North Korea as they continue to look to building their nuclear arsenal in a way that we have to have a flexible you know, a, a, a flexible strategy that can get ahead of where they are and stay ahead so they can, so they get the message to, to slow down, stop and reverse course, which would be, you know, the, the, you know, desired, you know, endpoint in, uh, in our strategy against North uh, and North Korea. Yeah. And then there's, you know, so when you talk about assurance, you know, this, which is mostly what we're talking about here, there's, assurance for the North Koreans that the United States will not attack. You know, if, if you're going to make a threat that says, if you do this, then the other part of that there's deterrence. And then there's the assurance part where you say, but if you don't, here's what we assure you, we will not do. If you got to have it, you got to have it. And then, then the problem for the United States is we made a tremendous tremendous mistake when we allowed Muammar Gaddafi to be taken out because Muammar Gaddafi believed in the American assurances that if he gave up his weapons program, he would be safe. And then, you know, he was summarily caught, executed. And, you know, so Kim Jong-un saw what happened to Muammar Gaddafi and, you know, take a guy like Vladimir Putin or anybody, any other authoritarian, they saw that and they said, that's what, that's the value of an American assurance that they can't be trusted. And then you think about our allies go back, uh, you know, my, one of my favorite examples is, you know, they were truly great allies in the conflict in Vietnam. And that was the Hmong people and the Hmong were, you know, terrific fighters that fought alongside the Americans. And then we essentially left them when we pulled out, we left them behind and, you know, they were slaughtered. And so, uh, you know, our allies see this and say, well, how, how good are American allies really? So we have a problem both in assuring adversaries that our commitments are real and allies that our commitments are real. And that's a big challenge. Well, let me add to that. I think um, you're spot on and I would look at it this way or or add to your commentary. And that is if you're going to seek real assurance from the United States, you better have a legally binding treaty. Now the rock enjoys that kind of treaty. So does NATO. Um, But, but, you know, when you sign agreements like the Budapest Memorandum and you base your security on things like that, um, you may well find yourself uh, left out there uh, to deal with the problems. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why Finland and Sweden decided they wanted to join NATO, because they were no longer comforted um, in whatever partnership agreements they were enjoying, that they felt, I think I need the legally binding requirement of a treaty uh, to ensure uh, that extended deterrence uh, capability that not only NATO, which truly is a nuclear alliance, 
um, and the United States would provide. Yeah, I'd, I'd also like to highlight, Curtis, because you, you bring up another piece of this, is the, the ultimate goal is security and peace. And this is not just South Korea's interest. This is in our interest to maintain you know, a, a strategy where we are not in conflict and that we keep conflict at bay in a way that is palatable for, you know, our strategic interests, our national interests, and South Korea's uh, strategic and national interests as well. And I think that's where the extended deterrence get, sometimes gets lost on the American public, is that this is not South Korea getting everything. We gain by placing weapons in the region because we can help to manage and maintain peace, which is in right. our greatest interest. Well, this is where I, I, and to your point, Jim, and I think we've talked about this in past podcasts. I think the U.S. has missed a real opportunity um, to add a nuclear ally. Um, we, I, I understand that the administration uh, is not interested in, in proliferation, but I don't understand why we want to hold back um, a self-determining, first world, rational, reasonable nations who are doing what is most rational and reasonable, which is I need something to guarantee my security and sovereignty. And I don't want to have you guarantee it anymore. Uh, I want to take it upon myself. And, um, uh, you know, and, and the, the risk of, of the international pariahism that would be laid upon the feet of the, of the South Korean people, uh, I think would be a travesty, um, because of their decision to do what they felt they needed to do for their own security, um, given the, the risk that they have. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was a, I think it was, uh, Stephen Waltz who once wrote an article that said every country should be and have a nuclear weapon. The world would be friendlier. <laughs> now, you know, we can debate whether or not that's something we really would like to see. But I would say that um, that uh, that there are some nations that we should be okay with um, because, um, you know, as this as we further as we trudge further along into the 21st century, these are going to continue to be challenges, not only to to the American ethos, but to the American taxpayer. And uh, um, and we're going to have to ask hard questions as to whether or not we are prepared to trade Seattle for Seoul. Uh, because if we are not, then we are doing South Korea a disservice by holding them back. Uh, you know, one thing I would offer is that for our friends in the disarmament community who, you know, were part of the writing of the NPR – uh, I would offer, you know, effects-based operations as a means for trying to think through how you should go about achieving your objectives. And in EBO, what the, you know, what you do is you start with your desired end state. And if your desired end state, for example, is a world that has fewer nuclear powers, then one of the best ways to do that is for the United States to have an adequate arsenal that they ensure that none of their allies proliferate. And we're sort of on the cusp of that not being the case anymore. And then also 
you know, for our, you know, there was the article that uh, labeled deterrence, you know, is, is nothing but uh, white supremacy. Uh, I would submit to people that if the United States spent more uh, on nuclear weapons and deterrence as opposed to, you know, spending more on its war fighting and war fighting in places where there are no vital American interests, then we could, you know, potentially save lots of innocent lives and, you know, you pick a, a country. But, you know, that's not something, you know, so we're, there's this clouded vision that is almost overwhelmed by ideological sort of, you know, just the inability to take a practical look at how do you achieve what you want. And so the focus isn't the desired end state. The focus is the method. And that method isn't getting the desired end state. Yeah. Speaking of not getting the desired end state, I I, I do want to highlight back in the early 70s, the United States decided to stop reprocessing nuclear fuel because we were going to set the example for the entire world not to do reprocessing. By the way, it's something that South Korea has been chided for by the IAEA um, of looking into reprocessing. And, uh, you know, at, and that is part of what holds back any type of a non-proliferation or a, a weapons program from that non-proliferation treaty. Yet the French have been reprocessing for many, many years, and yet there's no proliferation concern. And so I, I do like this view that Curtis has made, and I, one I hadn't thought about till this, uh, till we started this cast. We have a respectable, responsible partner in the world that is willing to take it upon themselves in some ways, or at least I don't like, maybe I shouldn't speak on behalf of South Korea, but could be willing to take, take this on uh, without our uh, extended deterrence or even partly with our extended deterrence and be a partner in maintaining the peace around the globe in an area that is somewhat um, difficult to control. This may help to control it. And that's good for everybody. You know, the, the, the biggest, if you look at the South Koreans and I know we're running out of time, so I'll be quick, but they have already, uh, enriched uranium to 77%. So they can do it. They have short and medium range ballistic missiles that we could put a W80 or a W84 warhead in and replace the conventional warhead there this you know put and and president president yun said in 2021 and i don't think if i recall correctly i don't think it was in office at that point but he said that you know he thought it was time that new that the united states bring nuclear weapons back to south korea so this is not europe south korea is not europe where you're going to have you know protests and and you'll have the governments publicly you know, saying that this is a bad idea, but privately saying, do it, we want it. They don't have that same kind of challenge. South Korea, I think uh, the latest, you know, the latest polling data shows that about 75 to 80% of South Koreans want nuclear weapons 
back on the peninsula. So I'm sort of, you know, I wonder if our reticence to, to do anything and to really hold to this, you know, outdated view of, of disarmament is going to bite us in the butt in the very short near term. Are we on to finals? Yes. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> um, I'll go first. So I can leave Jim for the final word. So uh, some writers of the BBC who, who talked about this issue, that they made a statement that I, I, I really liked, and it's just easier for me to read it than to try to uh, paraphrase it. But they said, basically, it suddenly became clear to the U.S. that reassuring words and gestures would no longer work if it was to dissuade South Korea from wanting to build its own bombs, it would have to offer them something concrete. Well, I think all we offered them were more reassuring words and gestures, nothing concrete. What we did is we issued a firmly or a, a sternly written letter. <laughs> and, um, and I don't see how that can be related as a landmark deal as many people are couching this to be. And my biggest fear here is, is that we are, uh, uh, we had a nation that was prepared to absorb the burden um, of, of proliferation, which I don't necessarily use as a bad word here uh, or a pejorative. And now this, this agreement is going to shackle uh, the, the South Koreans for the, for, for the foreseeable months or years and just delay what I think is going to be the inevitable when they realize that these are just grand words and gestures. We're still we're in the same place we were before, and we are going to have to take our own security into our own hands. And I think regardless of how the American election turns out in 24, that's when they'll decide uh, because um, the politics will change, whether the, administ the Biden administration is reelected or whether um, a Republican administration is reelected, the politics will change. And I think that will drive a reassessment and all the South Koreans will figure out is they're just two years behind where they should have been already. So I take it, you're going to give me the last word, Adam. So with the, since we're closing out here, so since you guys didn't do what you do every cast, I'll do it to myself. Since I'm the technology guy, all right, I'm going to go ahead and put a piece in here that says, or here at the end, to say South Korea can do it. They have all the technology. There are no encumbrances from a technological standpoint for them building their own nuclear weapons program. And to begin that process, aside from the controls that they've agreed to, and they would have to pull out, but people have been able to do that in a non-proliferation treaty under, and 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 to do that, there would be some international um, problems that they would have to confront, and they have to weigh that out against their security interests. The good thing I see about this document is an assurance that we've given them, be it small as Curtis may say it is, it's good that we are saying, we've got your back. There's no, I have no issue with that. The question is, from a deterrent standpoint, is what are the effects of that assurance, and what could have been, uh, what what could we have done, or what could South Korea have done if it weren't for these assurances? And I think that's what we're going to see in the future. 
And I, that, that's a piece maybe we could do a, a, a later time when we see some of the reaction from the Republic of Korea because they're stuck between a rock and a hard spot, <laughs> pun intended. I'll leave the cast go there. Ugh. Well, uh, it was another great discussion. Jim Curtis, thanks for uh, another interesting. Adam, thank yeah, you. Always, always fun. And for you, the listeners, want to thank you for joining us on this episode of the Nuclear View. And as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. Now, we are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We do occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. Again, that's asknids, one word, the at symbol, at thinkdeterrence.com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear knowledge where we want to advance peace promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.